Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest's individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening, and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. I am your host, Diane Kennedy, and my co-host, Rebecca Banks, is not able to be with us this evening. But um, just the same, we've got an exciting, exciting night for you. We are going to be speaking tonight with parent and award-winning author Elizabeth Verdick. She joins us to discuss her wonderful new book, The Survival Guide for Kids with Autism Spectrum Disorders. And this positive, straightforward book offers kids with autism spectrum disorders their own comprehensive resource for both understanding their condition and also finding the tools to help them cope with the challenges that they face every day. Um, We are so excited to have her here this evening. She is also, if I may give just a little more background on her, she's just a wonderful author. She also has um, an award-winning book series called Toddler Tools, the Best Behavior Series, and the Laugh and Learn Series. So she's been writing for quite a while. She absolutely knows what she's doing as a writer and as a mother like all of us. She has also learned she has uh, collaborated with a physician on this book, so her research has been extensive. This book is just exciting. It's positive. It's helpful for kids, for the parents, for the educators who help them. Uh, She's got lots of helpful tips and resources for our 2E kids, and we're going to talk about those tonight. Elizabeth, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me, Diane. We are so glad to have you here tonight. And as I mentioned, you do have some personal reasons for writing this book. Um, If you wouldn't mind starting out by just telling us a little bit about your own personal reasons and uh, who the book's for and how does it help parents and educators as well? Well, what got me interested in writing this book was the fact that my own son was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. And that began a journey for our family because suddenly we had to find out what autism was and how we could help. Um, And thank goodness for the Internet and for the books that I found on the market because there were a lot of things out there available for parents and for educators. And I read everything that I could get my hands on and found doctors and therapists and other experts who could help us. But what I had noticed over the years during all of this um, activity and helping of my son was that there's not a lot out there for kids themselves. Kids who have autism and Asperger's have a lot of questions, and I wanted a book to provide them with answers. That's excellent, and we couldn't agree with you more. It it is um, 
a, a very, very low area that um, doesn't seem to be covered real well. So um, as we sort of get into things here, too, um, I'd like to ask you um, about something that we share with you, a very important theme, and that is how we focus on the strengths rather than the weaknesses. If you'll give our listeners a few examples of the tips that you offer parents to start the conversation and keep it going for them, what are those tips? Well, I have tips for um, sharing the diagnosis with your child because often that can be a very difficult conversation for parents. They're not sure when to have the talk or how to go about it, and they don't know how to make it a positive and comfortable experience for their child. And I had to do some research in this area before I told my son that he had autism because up until he was 10 years old, we hadn't discussed autism as a term around our house. We would say things like, um, you have a difference in your brain. You think differently than other kids. You need some help with social skills. We wanted to put it as simply as we could because we felt that that was the level of understanding that he had at the time. But when he was um, 10 years old, we felt that he was emotionally and socially ready to, to really learn what this diagnosis meant. But we wanted to put it in positive terms because we don't see autism as just a challenge. We, we see that he has so many skills and strengths right. and wonderful aspects of his personality. And that's what we wanted to celebrate most in our family. Um, my son's name is Zach, and he's just a great kid. He makes me laugh every single day. And that was the message that I wanted to give to him, that you are an individual. You are a whole person. You also happen to have autism, but we're here to help. You know, that's that's right, and I love the way you put that. We've, you know, talked with Temple Grandin on the show, and, of course, as she helped us work on our book, and she's repeated that she loves to be thought of as a doctor of animal science first and a person mm-hmm. with autism second. And. Yeah. I think that's the theme that you've shared with your son and that you share in your book, and we certainly champion that idea. I think that uh, Temple Grandin is such a wonderful role model for for people in the autism community, but also people beyond the community because she's so smart and she's so articulate and she's accomplished a lot in her life. Um, she's a, a hero to me and to my son now. And I think she has a lot of positive insights about this community and how we can help kids on the spectrum. Well, and you know, one of the things that you mentioned about your son, which I would have to say is one of Temple's best features, um, from the moment I first listened to her at a conference until up until you know recently whenever we speak with her, and that's her sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And I would say my son shares that as well. Um, My twice exceptional son with Asperger's syndrome, it's probably his humor that gets him through so many things and can um, break the ice not only for himself, you know, for himself, but for his peers who sometimes might, you know, not know how to take him because he's hard to read sometimes when Mm -hmm. he's shy. And and sometimes having a sense of humor is one of the most powerful assets. I agree. I think it's a wonderful asset for anybody to have because humor connects us all. We all can laugh, and it's great when we can laugh at ourselves. That's one of the things that we've tried to teach our son 
um, since the time when he was very little that it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to look silly, and let's have some fun. Because one of the areas that he was having difficulty with when he was very young was imaginative play. Um, Mm -hmm. He tended to want to do very restricted um, kinds of activities, and he would get into these repetitive routines, and we wanted to break him out of that. One of the things that um, the therapists that we worked with did with him was they just got very silly, was making funny faces, trying to get his attention any way they could, um, pushing him in the swing while doing puppet shows, lots of different things to make him laugh. And Mm -hmm. it connected our whole family once we realized that that was a way that we could engage with Zach. That's great. And, you know, speaking of Temple, um, and I have to say, moving on to my next um, question here, and actually sharing what I just love about your book, there was a time uh, when we were first speaking and I shared uh, one of our presentation Uh, PowerPoint presentation slideshows with Temple asking for her opinion. Well, she didn't get a partway through it, and she said very abruptly, way too many words, where are the pictures? (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful thing about um, Temple and other people on the spectrum is that they can be very blunt. Um, Cut to the chase. She she did. (laughs) Yes, they cut to the chase. That's a good way to say it. And, you know, since then, I'm very mindful, and sometimes we do need to use a lot of words, especially if we're talking about the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, and we've got all kinds of research we're presenting to a professional group. But at the same time, I usually find a way. I'm very graphic, and I'm very visual as well. I love the the graphic uh, reminders and visual aids. And so I, I think of Temple, and I always try to insert, because there's nothing worse than she's right, than a boring slideshow. Even if it's t- a technical show, you need some kind of visual stimulation. Absolutely. And, and sometimes when you're learning about autism and you're talking about autism, it almost feels like you're learning a foreign language because some of the words that go along with it are so difficult. You That's you right. hear about vis- vestibular senses and proprioception right. and, and receptive language and uh, self-stimulatory behaviors and all of these um, words that y- you've probably never heard before. And it took me a long time before I felt very comfortable with that vocabulary um, but one of the things that I also learned in trying to work with my son was how to keep things as simple as possible. Because That's for right. a long time, he didn't have language, and we would need to figure out how to communicate in two-word phrases most of the time. And that went on for um, at least a full year or two. Mm-hmm. It actually ended up helping me with my writing. Because when you're writing for kids, especially toddlers, which is another audience of mine, uh, of mine being very simple and straightforward can be an asset. So I've learned all sorts of things through my son, and I'm actually um, very grateful for the experience that I've had. Well, and, you know, I think you've learned very well, too, because one of the things, as I mentioned, that I just love about it, and I know Rebecca does as well, we just can't emphasize enough, and that is all the wonderful pictures, descriptions, illustrations, especially the charts uh, in your book. And I'm going to zero in on a specific one because it really caught my attention. And that is the one about sensory issues, That um, the chart that shows seven senses that can play a role in how you feel. That's the name of the chart, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, 
sensory issues are a huge part of autism spectrum disorders for many of our kids. If you could describe for our listeners maybe a little bit about that chart and and how it can help explain these sensory challenges for them. Sure. Um, Well, when you first get the diagnosis of autism, what the doctors or therapists or other experts might be talking about mostly is the difficulties in communication or socialization or having repetitive behaviors. What they may not tell you is that there's another whole component, and that is the sensory issues, as you just mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. When we think about the senses, we think about the ones we learned in school, the sense of sight and the sense of smell and touch and that kind of thing. Well, when you're on the autism spectrum, you may be wired differently than typical people. Your senses may not be integrated in the same way. Your sense of sight may be much um, more... Uh, well, you might be um, much more susceptible to bright lights or things like that. You may not be able to track things with your eyes quite as well. Same with hearing. You may have very, very sensitive hearing, and loud noises make you want to cover your ears. Things that we think of as uh, more of a regular volume could sound um, very loud to a child on the spectrum. These sensory uh, differences can make it very hard to just get through everyday life. Um, imagine if if you were walking around often feeling um, like you were unbalanced in some way or the, the lights were too bright or if you're in school and the hallways are too crowded and you're getting bumped into and everything feels uncomfortable. It makes it that much harder to do the regular things in life like learning and socializing and communicating. When I put a chart like that in the book, I wanted to give kids a visual because they may be feeling all of these sensory things and not being able to express them well enough. So we show them in a chart form, and we give them the words to describe their experiences. I think the chart is also very helpful for parents and also for grandparents who are having a hard time understanding, why is my child um, behaving in this way? Why does he have meltdowns or temper tantrums? Why does he seem to be so uncomfortable in his own skin? When you read a chapter on sensory issues and you see the chart, it all starts to make a little bit more sense in your mind. That's right, and I love the way that you connect each um, each sense and how you added, um, you know, aside from the normal things that, that we have, taste, touch, mm-hmm. um, hearing, and how you really expanded to cover the whole gambit, and I, I just love how you connected it. I think the chart is really, um, it's it's very helpful, and I think it's, as you mentioned, simple and easy to understand. Mm-hmm. I think the visuals are always a vital thing, and that's one of the things I'm really proud of in this book is that we were able to use uh, really bright colors, eye-catching oh, yes. cartoons, and lots and lots of charts that aren't um, intimidating in any way. They're helpful for kids, and you can they, kids can photocopy them and put the chart someplace in their room or in their notebook so that they have it with them whenever they need it. Well, and and you're right about I love the full color and the you know the bright the bright colors. It's wonderful. It's it's very helpful because Thank it's you. visually stimulating all on its own, and the graphics are are incredible. You must have had a wonderful artist with the illustrations because they're very good. I really think they're wonderful. This is a new artist um, that we hadn't worked with before. 
and I think he did a great job. He he just captured that um, unique and intense quality that a lot of kids on the spectrum have, and I think he gave each image a real sense of fun and positivity. Absolutely. And, you know, um, when we mentioned earlier about Temple Grandin, I wanted to get to get back to um, something that she promotes a lot, and that is positive role models and um, mentoring. And in in your book, you do have a section that talks about well-known people with um, ASDs, and I think that's important too because you know kids like to know that that they're that they are bright, not broken. They like to be reminded of people who are exceptionally bright. So um, if you could, maybe give us some suggestions that you have for helping our kids and their parents to find these kinds of mentors and peer groups that are in their areas of special strengths. Do you have some suggestions? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, we, we did a whole chapter on famous people with autism because we really wanted to provide Um, a positive message about the kind of role models that are out there, like Temple Grandin, but then also some people who are are closer to the age of many of these readers. Um, We say that the book that we did is for ages 8 to 13, although um, kids who are a little bit younger than that and who are older than that are also finding the book to be very useful. So it was fun to go out and look for role models who were closer to the age of teens or young adults. And there are some great ones out there. Um, We talk about James Durbin, who was one of the the contestants on American Idol. We talk about Jason McElwain, um, who goes by the nickname J-Mac, who was the young man with autism who who made those uh, famous shots in basketball, even though he wasn't part of the basketball team. I Uh remember that a couple of years ago. I do remember that. He was uh, he was famous all of a sudden, and he got to go on talk shows, and he got to meet president, and he had a lot of very important things to say for kids on the autism spectrum. He he said that you don't have to be a certain way your whole life. You can dream big, and you can accomplish amazing things. And he also enlightened a lot of people who don't have autism. Um, to see a guy like that in the news uh, and in the media. I think really opens people's eyes to the fact that um, autism isn't something scary or strange. Uh, It's just a part of life for a lot of people. Um, So I wanted to have a chapter that that featured some young people with autism. But um, just to go back to your question, you were talking about how do you find um, peer mentors and um, role models in real life? And I think that there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, And sometimes it can just start within the family. You can find um, older siblings and cousins and other relatives who um, can spend time with your child. Um, Grandparents can be great role models. And it's also important to encourage your child to join some activities outside of school. and that may be hard for some kids on the spectrum to do that. They they may um, not feel comfortable right away, but it is possible to join an after-school club or become part of an athletic team of some sort, uh, take music lessons. They can join the YMCA. There are all sorts of um, learning and social opportunities in the community. Sometimes parents will find that it's important to to do a social skills group 
because maybe their child needs um, needs to learn more of the basics and social skills, and I think that's a great possibility for um, parents. We did that with our son, Zach. He participated in social skills groups at school and outside of school. Um, and one of the best resources we ever found was I connected with a family who had um, who has a, a young son who's got more severe autism. And I saw the way that boy's older brothers interacted with him. They were fabulous. They kept mm-hmm. him energized and motivated, and they played with him a lot. Both of those older brothers were um, Boy Scouts, and they trained to become personal care assistants. And I hired them both uh, during summers and on weekends to spend extra time with my son, to teach him sports, to get him to run around outside, and to have an older guy around who was sort of like a big brother. And that was one of the best things that we ever did was finding um, finding people just a few years older who could really serve as role models for Zach. Well, you're right about that, and you remind me of one of the first um, groups that my son got involved in. I think he was still in junior high school when this happened. He, um, The moment he learned how to play chess, it became an obsession, which is <laughs> that's one of the typical things with um, with children who are twice exceptional. Mm-hmm. You know, chess can be a big thing. Well, he became obsessed with it, and so he joined an after-school chess club and they actually met in the evening, and one thing grew uh, from one thing to another. As he advanced, he got into the older groups because he kept moving up the ladder, and I guess if you win, then you get into a higher circle the next time, and and it did expose him to people who had shared interests of, of various degrees. So that was an opportunity to meet um, older kids, and, and then they found out, and as well as you know peers of his own age, then they would find out they have other shared interests. So I think it builds, and it, it is a good way. It is. It's a great way. Um, and a lot of these kids on the spectrum have very intense interests. There are things that they they just love to do, whether it's playing chess or in my son's case at one point he loved memorizing the presidents and talking about the presidents right now he's into pokemon and Mm -hmm. video games of course and he can relate to other kids his age because many of them share interests in pokemon and video games too and once they've made a connection over an activity that can lead to a social relationship outside of school that's right. And, you know, while we're on the subject of social skills, it is a common theme with our kids that they struggle to fit in. I mean, even through adulthood, if I hear one common theme that's just so painful is, I just want to fit in, I want to belong. And and they miss sometimes how strong they are in other areas because it's so heavy when you feel like you don't fit in. And I noticed something in your book that you've got um, entitled, What is a social skills you have it entitled a social skills survival kit so my question is what is that and how can it help we wanted to give kids all sorts of ways to connect with other kids and in the particular chapter that you're mentioning um, where we do the social skills survival kit we wanted to give kids just some basics and some visuals so that they could uh, put some of these social nuances together a little bit better um, a lot of times when they're young, we're focused on teaching them things like sharing and taking turns, um, more of the simple skills. 
Well, as they get older, by the time they're between the ages of 8 and 13, the social skills are becoming more sophisticated. And we want to make sure that our kids on the spectrum can keep up. So in the social skills survival kit, um, we're trying to get kids to think of them as imaginary tools. It's not something that you can really hold in your hand, but you can think about it and put a visual in your mind. One of them is, we call it, a GPS, because it's about locating yourself in a setting. Mm, um, a lot like of kids that. are, they, well, a lot of these kids, they love um, tech stuff. They're great with computers, and so we thought, let's talk about it as a GPS. Um, so it, one way to think of it is to have to surround yourself with visuals, as we were talking about earlier. Um, you need to know what, what day it is and what time it is and where you're supposed to be and when. So a lot of our kids um, do much better if they have agendas and calendars, um, visual reminders all around them so that they can stay um, with their schedule and have a routine that makes them feel less anxious. But there's another piece to that idea of a GPS, and that is to be able to adapt to different kinds of settings. Um, a lot of kids on the spectrum, they want things to be a certain way or they expect things to be a certain way, and real life isn't going, always going to be like that. It's not always going to um, meet your expectations. So you have right. to be a little bit adaptable. You have to be a little bit flexible. That's One of the right. things that we take them through um, in the chapter is how to look around you and figure out what behavior fits the situation. And then we give lots of examples of kids on the spectrum who are trying to do that very thing. One of the examples in the book is um, is based on my own son, since we've been talking about him. Um, Zach found a way to connect with people, and that was through humor and joke telling. However, a lot of times he would try to use those skills in the classroom during the <laughs> middle of a lesson. And the now teacher, that sounds like opposite yeah. behavior. We're going to get labeled as, which I really don't like at all. But <laughs> I, I are, see where you're going. <laughs> yeah. So the teachers didn't ne- necessarily like it. Kids right. in the class may have been laughing and they may have been momentarily <laughs> entertained, but they were distracted. So we had to ask Zach, think about the setting that you're in. Turn on your mental GPS. Think about when would be a better time to tell your jokes and to do your comedy routine, and. That's at recess and at lunch or um, sometimes during special breaks that they have during the school day, but not during class time. So we take kids through um, that whole idea of look around you, know your setting, and figure out the kind of skills that are needed for each setting. That's just one of the social skills um, survival tools that we have in the kit, but there are several others. Um, we really tried to give kids lots of tools so that they can go into the world with a sense of confidence. Oh, confidence is so important. And I think, um, you know, what you just pointed out is probably one of the biggest things that breaks down their confidence because they find themselves in trouble so much because of their inappropriateness. 
and teaching them to be aware of, of their surroundings so that they can be, you know, a behavior. You're right. The same behavior could be very appropriate in in a fun activity where, you know, you're trying to tell a joke and, and fit in. But at the same time, you're right. In the seriousness of a classroom, it could come off as opposition to authority and the teacher, you know, criticizes then the child's confidence they're not as willing to speak out again. Exactly. That's one of the things that um you know that we try to reinforce in this book is that um social skills are they're very nuanced. Um and you and you learn a lot about them as you go along, as you grow up. You don't have to learn all of them all at once. You're gonna make mistakes along the way. But we're trying to give kids a pretty clear set of guidelines and then also enhance all of that with stories from real life. Um, we have lots of shorter and longer stories in the book about real kids who've been through this and also quotes directly from their own mouths. And all of that, um, I think, makes this book much more engaging so that it's not just trying to memorize lists of social skills. It's about really figuring out um, how they can apply to your life and how you can use them to make a difference. You know, and I I love what you said when it comes out of their own mouth because I know that was something that my son looked for, especially in his really rough years of adolescence. You know, he would say to me when I'd go to conferences and we were learning and, and trying to find better answers to help kids like him, and he knew that, but he would say, how many times do you get to hear from kids like me themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, and it was important to him, and I I think um, a book like yours would have been extremely helpful. And, you know, as we talk about an area of survival that is just, you know, we're talking about survival here with, um, with autism spectrum disorders, and when we look at sometimes our very own families, and I, I can speak from experience having three very different children, <laughs> and in all all ways you can imagine, sometimes surviving our own families can be the most difficult. And you do have a chapter on family matters. You talk about siblings, and you've got some advice in your book for grandparents. Can you just speak just a little bit about that and maybe some tips of how we can help um, our siblings understand um, our children's siblings and you know our extended family members so they can all help everybody get along better? Mm-hmm. Um, we we did put together quite a long chapter on families because this is an area of such importance. Um, mm-hmm. The family is is your source of stability, but it can also be one of your greatest sources of conflict in your life. Um, and That's right. So we um, we really wanted to let kids know that we understand that, um, and so we give them tips on how to handle conflicts, um, and also just. Um, how to handle some of the everyday things that are harder for kids on the spectrum. Um, you wouldn't necessarily think that coming to the dinner table and sitting down and having dinner with your family and eating what's on your plate would be that difficult, but it really is for a lot of kids on the spectrum. Um, they may be very choosy eaters. They may not like to sit for a long period of time. Conversation around the dinner table can be difficult. And so just some of these um, daily routines that, families have can um, be a source of difficulty more than in um, typical families. So we acknowledge all of that, and we give kids um, 
tips for making those situations better. But I think that this chapter is also important for the siblings to read because a lot of times um, a child on the spectrum will have a typical sibling and they just don't understand each other. Um, And and conflict goes deeper then because... um, they can't find a way to get along. They can't necessarily find common ground. My daughter um, often doesn't understand uh, why her younger brother doesn't want to hug her or isn't open to going on a bike ride when she wants to or won't play a board game when she's in the mood to play a board game and she thinks, well, I'm trying to be nice. I'm the one who's trying to be friendly. Why is he flinching and backing away? Well, a lot of times it might be because of sensory issues. Or he might just be having one of those moments where he's in a bad mood. Um, And reading a chapter about families and all the difficulties um, and permutations that are there can can really help a sibling understand um, life from the perspective of someone on the spectrum. I think it's also good for grandparents um, to to read that chapter and then others in the book. My co-author and I, um, we did a presentation at a library recently that was mostly aimed at parents uh, who have children on the spectrum. And we were really delighted to have a lot of grandparents join in with the conversation. Um, They were there to listen and learn and figure out um, how to connect with their uh, grandchild who's on the spectrum. And they had great questions. And they, they didn't understand what, you know, why is he acting that way, or why doesn't she want to spend time with me? Um, what can I do to make this relationship stronger? And my book, I hope, gives the answers to those questions, because once families make that connection and they understand each other better, um, family can become a really strong source of support, um, and kids on the spectrum need a lot of support. You're very right about that, and if I can interject just for a moment, I I love the fact that you're seeing great turnout by the grandparents because I think, you know, they can be a wonderful resource, not just within their own family, but with other uh, adults their age that may have family members because sometimes if there's a grandparent, and I've heard this before at some of our talks, There's one family member, a father, a grandparent, who's a little bit stubborn about, you know, looking for um, excuses almost of the child's behavior. In other words, well, this is this child spoiled. This is just acting out. It need, you know, you need a little more discipline. And and they can tend. We can tend to all get set in our ways and mm-hmm. think this way when we're older. So I think the idea of sort of peer-to-peer mentorship about these topics is wonderful because they may they may listen to another fellow grandparent more than they will maybe even their own um son or daughter trying to discuss their grandchild and you know the whole the whole thing of what's going on so i i think sharing information amongst the community you know of um of all age groups here so that we can help family members, extended family members, who maybe, you know, on the outside, it's really easy to look in and make a snap judgment. Mm-hmm. I think that that's very true. Um, there there can be a lot of misunderstandings. Um, a grandparent may not understand what's going on. Um, they may look at it as you're, you're not raising your child right. right. This isn't how we raised you. 
Um, and it's just because they aren't informed. Maybe they don't know very much about autism. It's only um, just become um, more um, talked about recently. It's more in the mainstream media than it has been in the past. So we're all learning here. Um, it's just that parents like us who are, are raising children on the spectrum, um, we know a lot and we can we can communicate and, and let other people know that this isn't a sign of bad parenting. It's a sign that something is going on with the child, so try to keep an open mind. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I was in a grocery store or another public place when my son was younger, and oh, he would yeah. have a meltdown or a tantrum, and people would turn and look at me as if I were the worst parent in the world. And I wanted to just stand up and say, no, I'm I'm a good parent. I'm trying really hard. I even write self-help books for kids. Right. But I know what, exactly that how you feel. <laughs> it would have been a total waste of time to try to explain myself when my kid was lying on the floor and crying. Um, right. <laughs> so usually we would just have to get up and leave, and sometimes I wished I could just have a sign around my neck that would say, you know, my kid has special needs, and please um, don't judge us. But I know a lot of moms and a lot of dads and grandparents, too, who have been in that position where you're out in public, with a child with special needs, and the behavior isn't the usual, um, and and people want to they want to look at that and they want to judge. But if we share our experiences, we explain more about autism, and we get the word out there. I think that um, it definitely helps people understand that it's um, it's not a parenting issue; it's just an autism issue, and like I said before, they just have to keep an open mind. Well, and don't you agree, Elizabeth, that, you know, we talk a lot about this in our book, that when children are twice exceptional, in other words, when they are um, able to function at a at a very high level, maybe, maybe it's their intellect that's, you know, extremely bright, or they may be gifted in in artistic ability, people can have a tendency to think, well, if you're capable of this, they just immediately make the assumption that you can control your challenging behavior or you can't really have a problem because if you're, the, you know, you can't be that smart and still be challenged in some way. That seems to be one of the biggest misnomers. It's a I hidden that is. That's a, it is. It's a big misunderstanding out there that, um, you know, I've heard people say, you're too smart to act that way. Right. Um, and no, they're not too smart to act that way. Um, they might be having intense emotions in that moment. They might be having problem communicating what they're oh, yes. feeling and what they need. It's not a sign of intelligence. Um, it's just a sign that in that moment they might need help, and that's when we can step in. So I think that, um, yeah, it is. That's one of the most confusing things about autism is that your child can look uh, typical or quote-unquote normal, um, but then they're behaving differently. Uh, people, It's hard for people to understand what autism and Asperger's is all about because a lot of these kids are very smart and they're gifted, as you said, um, and yet they they may be socially and emotionally behind it, uh, their peers. 
You're right, and and it's a shame if we, on both sides of that coin, and that is if we miss an opportunity to really be able to support their challenges because they are suffering. It's painful, especially when people don't recognize it. And at the same time, if we dismiss them as, you know, being uh, challenged in some area or having issues of thinking that they can't be exceptional, then we are missing out and we are not helping them to reach their full potential of what their gifts may entail and and really, you know, where where that could reach. So it, it's it's sad and it can yeah. be beneficial if we just understand that everything is not as it appears, behavior mm-hmm. or giftedness. <laughs> yes. And and to treat each one as a unique individual because That's they right. all are. And it, you know, they may have an a diagnosos of autism or Asperger's, but that's definitely not all they are. There's so much more going on. Um and so how do we best serve their needs and how do we um how do we make a positive difference in their lives? That's that's one of the things that I ask myself every day and writing this book was one of the small ways that I could give back because I I felt that when I needed help when my son was younger people came uh, uh, to to help me. I mean, sometimes it felt like they appeared out of nowhere. Um we had we worked with great doctors and therapists and moms in the and dads in the community uh called me up when they um when they heard that uh I my son had been diagnosed and they'd call and say I heard from a mutual friend, what can I do to help you? And that was a fabulous gift for me. I learned so much from all of these people. And I felt like this all that knowledge was kind of stuck in my head. Um and I I was still helping my son every day, but I wanted to find a way to help others who are going through what we've gone through. Um I really wanted to reach those kids and this was my effort to do so. Well, I think it's a wonderful effort. I know that we just absolutely adore your book. We think you've done a great job and after speaking with you, it it's just obvious that, you know, your greatest um teacher has been experience mm-hmm. <laughs> and with that comes great wisdom and I I um just hail you for um sharing that with others. That's just it's a wonderful thing and I hope you continue to do so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, and before I let you go today, if you will just briefly tell us, because I'm fascinated by your other books, and and actually have to tell just a little story here of one of your books about teeth are um, not for biting. Yes. A a story, and I think I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. My um, wonderful Asperger, um, twice exceptional, gifted son in preschool, I think he was around four years old, he um, actually was in line for the restroom unprovoked of any in any way bit another child in the back because in the answer was when he was taken into the director's office okay are you mad at this child what happened no i'm sure that i had to use the restroom more than he did more urgently so i needed him to get out of my way <laughs> and <laughs> I think at that time, at you know, four years old, I would have loved to sit down and read with him. Teeth are not for biting, even if you have to go really bad. <laughs> Very funny. Well, I, you know, I and I think it's funny that one of my best-selling books for kids is 
teeth are not for biting. I mean, who would have thought a book on biting would be one of an author's best-selling books? But clearly a lot of kids go through the stage of biting for whatever reason, Um, mostly because they're teething, but often for other reasons too. And uh, I wanted to write a book that would give them a very simple simple way to try other things instead. And it's, that particular book is is part of a a board book series for toddlers where um, the series name is the Best Behavior Series because the whole point of it really is to teach them positive social and emotional skills. Um, right. Another popular book in the series is called Words Are Not for Hurting, and it talks about how to um, use your words to help people and not hurt people, um, and how to say I'm sorry because sometimes those two little words really can mean so much. Um, and, and I love writing books for toddlers. I think it's great fun. And what's been interesting to me is that the books I write for toddlers um, are also helping a lot of um, kids on the spectrum who may be a little bit older than the toddler age, but who um, benefit from books that are about improving behavior or developing positive routines in their lives. You know, I'm, as you were talking, and I think these are just wonderful resources. And, yes, I would say, like the biting example, that um, clearly could be a form of communication and have gone very bad in an autistic child who doesn't know how to express verbally, excuse me, but I <laughs> I need you to get out of line. <laughs> yeah. You right. know, I mean, just lashing out. And and I have to laugh, and this is humorous because I'm I really am somewhat anti-political. Uh, of course, I have views and beliefs like everyone, but one thing I just really gets on my nerves in an election year, and I I can't help but thinking of it when you were speaking is how words are not for hurting. If we could mm-hmm. maybe we could promote <laughs> that with every negative political ad, I I think the world would be a better place. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, maybe some of them are, are parents, and um, and they'll think about that as they read that book to their child, and, and it will rub off on the adults, yeah, I hope. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, I have really sincerely enjoyed having you as our guest, Elizabeth, and your books are wonderful. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your books, where they can find you? Sure. Um you can find me on Facebook. You can also find me through my publisher's website. I publish with Free Spirit Publishing, um, so that's freespiritpublishing.com. You can also find my books on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Um, any bookstore really should um, hopefully be carrying my books, and if they're not, um, please ask them uh, to order a special, a special one for you. Um, and, Diane, I've really enjoyed this opportunity to talk to you I've um I've learned a lot and I really um I appreciate the chance to share my experiences and share my book. Well, we are just glad to have you and we encourage you to keep up the wonderful work and encourage everyone um if they don't have it already to get a copy of The Survival Guide because it's a wonderful book, just wonderful for your kids, for yourself, share with your family members and by all means if you've got young children and preschoolers, check out Elizabeth's uh, younger series in the words are not for hurting. And let's all take a lesson from that. Um, <laughs> thank you again. You have a wonderful evening, and we are just 
so grateful to have had you here on the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. Good night, Thank Elizabeth. You. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Mm-hmm.